Yeah, it's all right. All right. All right. We'll get started. I know we've got some more folks that are going to join us. I know the popes are coming. Uh, we may have some some others that join us later on. We've got a big day um, in the life of the church. And so really most of this is happening today. That's on the announcements. Um, so we, the youth are going um, to Drive Shack after worship. Um, and um, they all know that. I just really put that up there so everybody else knows that. Um, and um, so they're excited, uh, or different degrees of excited. They're excited to be hanging out together. Um, and they will return to us this evening, golf experts. I have a certain, um, certain, um, just make sure when somebody's swinging that you stay away from it, okay? We don't want any black eyes this afternoon. Um, we are having a cookout today, um, starting at 4.30-ish, but you can come whenever. We're not going to probably eat right at 4.30, obviously. Um, and uh, But the address is in the weekly email, or you can message Michael or myself. Um, Sharon is hosting it. She is not with us this morning, but we knew she wouldn't. She had another obligation this morning. Um, and uh, so we're going to have it at her uh, and Terry's house, and um, we're excited to do that. Um, I think at this point, what we need, uh, having looked at what people have signed up for on the Facebook page, um, we need some drinks, or you can bring your own drinks, um, and uh, we could use some ice, um, and um, so if you haven't signed up for something, uh, online or in person, if you'll let me know that you want to bring one of those things, um, we would um, love to have you. Um, and I know uh, we're doing um, Bright Leaf hot dogs. Um, so if you want something else, you can bring that. Um, and um, uh, we are um, doing s'mores. They're providing stuff for s'mores. So we'll have some s'mores. Um, if you have any games, outdoor games, they also said you could bring those. They have cornhole, but anything else? I know we have some can jam fans um, amongst us. Um, and uh, I'll bring the spike ball, even though y'all never want to set it up. Um, I will bring the spike ball um, and uh, maybe maybe today's the day um this i just want to remind you that in the weekly email um each week especially this summer we're going to be doing resources in that weekly email so it'll not just be um uh kind of what's happening and keeping you up to date um we are kind of scaling back on some of our regular not that we're a program driven church but we're, we're scaling back on some things but um it will also include our um, resources for the Enneagram. If you would like to keep learning, um, this week had a website and um, a podcast um, that would be good places to start learning um, each week. And then if you um, are uh, looking for um, uh, other resources. Um, if you're curious and, and want to learn more, you know, you can always talk to Michael and I. If you miss a Sunday, we're going to say this later, but um, we'll be putting the uh, the flow of worship will be a little bit different. So it's not really a sermon. It'll be a kind of a teaching and a, a devotion or a sermonette that's kind of around that theme. Um, we'll be putting that on our podcast and on our YouTube page. Um, and so if you miss a Sunday, you're going to want to catch up. Um, you're going to want to hear all the numbers and all the things. And so our hope was that even um, as uh, we'll talk about the why we're studying this, but one of the whys is that we know people are going to be traveling this summer um, because we can, we can finally travel. And so we know that there are people that you want to go see, that there are places you want to go, um, and that we want to find ways to still be connected to one another. And so um, I think this study, while um, having some deeper meaning, also will allow us to do that as well. Um, so uh, we are so glad that you're here this morning. Uh, Elizabeth, we're glad that you are here with us visiting this morning, and um, we'll get started with the rest of worship.
O Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my every thought when far away. You chart the path ahead of me and tell me where to stop and rest. Every moment you know where I am. You know what I'm going to say, even before I say it, Lord. You both proceed and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Too great for me to know. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the place of the dead, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning. If I dwell by the farthest oceans. Even there, your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night. But even in darkness, I cannot hide from you. To you, the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are both alike to you. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body. And knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, and how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion. As I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O oh God. They are innumerable. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up in the morning, you are still with me. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you. And lead me along the path of everlasting life. Psalm 1, 30, 30. You join me. Um in a brief prayer as we continue in worship. God, you're present um, in our stress, you're present in our anxiety, you're present in our calm times, you're present with us all the time. And our prayer this morning is that we're able to stop long enough, to listen long enough that we're able to hear your voice in our lives, that we're able to experience you just a little bit, that we get a glimpse of who you are this morning, that we that we feel loved, that we feel whole, that we feel like we belong. God, as we do a little intro into what the Enneagram is and kind of overview about it and transition to how we can grow from it, God, we ask that you're with us um, and that knowledge and that you're you got us that you don't um, that you don't leave us we pray that we recognize that and we pray that as we learn about ourselves and that we learn about others that we're able to learn more about you about your character and about your love we thank you for the way that you care for us we thank you for the way that you love us amen But oh, I'm so glad you made. 
Okay, my favorite part of that video was the backup dancers, like <laughs> doing like that. Uh, I just want to dance like that. Um, okay, so this morning, um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm looking for my notes. There we go. Um, it, this morning's worship is a little bit different, um, and it'll be a little bit different than what we do in the rest of the Enneagram series. Um, I hope that you got the subtle message we were giving in um, the psalm reading through the video and then through that worship song um, about being made in the image of God, about being made unique, being made special, um, each of us different, um, and uh, each of us made for a purpose, because that is really the theme that we're uh, behind our study of the Enneagram itself. Um, I'm going to share just a little bit about the uh, brief history of how the Enneagram came to be. You may have heard about this. Um, I, a podcast I listened to that was, it's a couple years old, but she gave a statistic um, that uh, about 20% of all the content on Instagram is Enneagram related, um, which may not seem like a lot, but out of all the things that people could be sharing on Instagram, 20% of it relates to the Enneagram. And my guess is that number has only gone up in the last few years um, as it's become more popular. Um, you hear about the Enneagram in church circles. You hear about it in non-church circles. Um, is it a Christian thing? Is it not a Christian thing? So we're going to get to the bottom of it. Um, know that um, to begin with, as you hear this history that I'm going to share, um, you'll hear that um, it, there's, it's not based in science, um, I will say, and I feel the need to say that because I'm actually certified um, to give you a personality assessment um, that's based on the five factor model. It is really based in science, um, lots and lots of study. Um, and uh, so this is not like something that you could use to choose to hire somebody or not hire somebody. It's not HR rated. Um, but as you hear about how it came to be and the literally hundreds of years over which it developed and, and why it's had such a push since the 60s and 70s, my hope is that you'll hear why we ch we're choosing to do a whole series on it this summer. Um, it did not start as the organized thing that we have now. Um, the beginning of its history is a little murky. Um, there's some different theories, um, and because of some of the places that it traveled to and getting to what we know as the Enneagram today, um, and those that have influenced it, you'll, you'll hear why there's some salacious people that are attached to it, um, some 
cult-like people that are attached to its formation along the way. Um, there are pockets of Christian groups that um, say that you should, that Christians should stay away from it. Um, we're not one of those pockets of people, um, obviously. Um, the diagram that's associated with the Enneagram that I think Michael is gonna show you on a handout in just a little bit, has its origins all the way back to Pythagoras. Um, if you remember, you may remember that name from uh, geometry in high school. Um, it, we think that it has Sufi or Islamic mystic kind of origins. Um, and, uh, but that's, they developed some of the ideas behind it. It's kind of uh, one podcast I listened to said it's kind of like if um, they uh, discovered eggs and butter and a few hundred years later, um, somebody made cookies with it. Like that's kind of what we're talking about when we say that the ideas originated with them. Um, but the, the Sufis, uh, these Islamic mystics um, connected to early Christian mothers and fathers. Um, we've talked about the history of Christianity and that when Constantine, uh, Constantine became emperor, he made Christianity as the official religion of the day. And then Christianity began to take off, uh, take on a different kind of identity it had been sort of on the side. It had been something that was very marginalized. And now it, it became very empirical in the way that it um, operated. It was protected. And, and because it was protected and now in a system of power, it looked different. And so there was this group of, uh, of those who felt like they needed to get back to the Christian roots. And so they literally separated themselves from everything and went to live in the desert. And these are known as the early uh, Christian uh, desert mothers and fathers. Um, they were uh, monks who devoted their whole life to studying um, the, what scriptures they had, um, studying Christianity. They believed in an ascetic lifestyle, which means that they gave up all of the pleasures of life, like all, like they ate just for nourishment and barely for that, they gave up things like bathing, they didn't sleep much, um, because they believed that um, you should, uh, that focused them more on God, and you shouldn't, you shouldn't be too comfortable, and so they gave up all their comforts um, to, to study um, and to get back to the roots of Christianity. So, Evagrius Ponticus, there's there are some interesting names, and this is coming from somebody named Charity. There's some interesting names in this list. Um, Evagrius Ponticus um, is credited with uh, some of the foundational ideas of uh, the Enneagram. Um, he combined personality with the seven deadly sins and then added a couple more. Um, Thacrius was an interesting guy. He was, uh, one podcast called him a fancy guy. Um, uh, he, um, did, um, he lived in the late, the mid to late 300s. He was a very influential monk. A lot of his work has been lost, but a lot of other people, a lot of his contemporaries at the same time wrote on a lot of his, um, the things that he was doing, the things that he was teaching, wrote about him a lot. Um, in a lot of his contemporaries felt the need to comment on how um, handsome he was. Apparently, he was really, really good looking. And he lived his life uh, taking full advantage, at least at the beginning of his life, of being good looking. He had, uh, uh, <laughs> he was so hot that he was vain and he had this vain kind of glory about him. That is important in a minute. It's not just a random fact though it is an interesting random fact. He grew up in Turkey, um, but uh, because he was so good looking, he was um, uh, able to connect um, and hook up with a lot of different women. And at one point hooked up with, um, uh, connected with uh, a woman whose husband was pretty powerful and it required him to leave Turkey um, as a result of this encounter. And so he fled to Jerusalem. Um, he's still not low-key there, um, and uh, he gets, while he is in Jerusalem, he gets very, very sick, and because he's well-known um, already um, in the area, uh, uh, one of the desert mothers came to visit him and pray over him when he was very sick. Her name was Melanie the Elder, 
she was ridiculously wealthy. At this point, she was one of the richest people in the Roman Empire. Um, remember a few weeks ago when we were talking about women, what women actually says about, uh, what scripture actually says about women, I, I commented on some of the creative ways that women have found a way to lead. Well, this is Melanie the Elder found a creative way to lead at a time she wasn't able to lead much. Um, she took all that wealth when she became a Christian and set up all of these monasteries out in the desert. She set up all of these groups of people that were studying Christianity everywhere. And so she visits Evagrius, he's very sick. Um, and she says, I think um, that you should become a monk when you become well. You have a lot to offer, and I think you should offer it all to God. And um, Evagrius is not real keen on that. Again, remember, he has lived very comfortably, enjoying all of the things that he could enjoy, but he's so desperate and sick at this point that he agrees. And so she prays over him, and he gets well, and he makes good on his word and goes out to the desert. Um, there he completely gives into that ascetic lifestyle. Um, he doesn't bathe, uh, he eats once a day. They sleep for about three or four hours a night. So he studied a lot during that time. And because of the lifestyle that he'd been living before, I told you it would make sense. Because of the lifestyle he'd been living before, he begins to study a lot about temptation and a lot about um, the, the shadow side or the dark side or the negative side of all of us, but, but also about him. He came up with a list of eight temptations and how people could overcome them. Later, uh, a man named Father Gregory would take those eight temptations and uh, change them to be the seven deadly sins that, we, that you might have heard about. Um, but Evagrius takes this time in the desert to really learn about temptation, to learn about himself. Um, he wanted to grow to be a better person um, in order to be able to love other people better, to love God better. And he wanted to create ways to help other people do that as well. So he develops this, this list and um, oral, it, it's an oral tradition for a very long time. It's taught to other people. Um, this is how he comes, this is how Evagrius connected with that, uh, some of that early teaching of those Sufis and Islamic mystics and makes it, uh, gives it that Christian kind of flavor. The cookies are starting to be made. It's still not real cookies yet, but it's starting to be made. Um, so we, uh, it comes in contact, uh, George Ivanovich Gurji. I told you there's some crazy names. Um, he was a Greek Armenian philosopher and mystic. And he takes those principles that have been an oral tradition and he um, actually writes something and he calls it the Enneagram. He's the first one to actually call it the Enneagram. George was a, um, George Gurdjieff was a, he was also an interesting man. He also uh, liked to uh, live a very comfortable lifestyle, had a lot of inappropriate relationships with women. Uh, he would, he had a bunch of odd jobs. He would um, take regular birds and dye them yellow and sell them as canaries to people. That was one of his random odd jobs that he had. Um, apparently everybody wanted a yellow canary at that point um, and they didn't care if it was real or not. But he said you could overlay the Enneagram on any established system in order to understand it, whether it was religion, pol politics, the uh, economic structure. He believed that this thing, the Enneagram, could, could make sense of any system that involved people. Um, his version was about a person's divine interior life. Part of why I'm giving you some of the more salacious details is just just like in scripture, um, God uses <laughs> all kinds of people um, to, um, to teach us things and um, to move. Uh, and uh, nobody has to be perfect to be used by God. Um, and um, you'll learn how non-perfect you are this summer. Um, <laughs> so Oscar Acaso, uh, it, in the 1950s and 1960s, uh, comes across this Enneagram teacher. He is who we call the father of the modern Enneagram. 
He uses what Georges wrote to actually create a personality profile. Up to this point, it's still kind of about behaviors and about temptations and how to overcome them. And so he actually takes it um, to uh, become more of a personality profile. He said he though he came up with it on his own, that he uh, it came to him in a vision um, by uh, an angel that's known in Jewish tradition as Metatron. Um, it, that's a real thing. I didn't make that up. I know that sounds like something out of the Disney movie, but it's an actual, it's a name in the Jewish tradition that's also thought to be um, in other places, the same angel as Gabriel um, that we have in our canon. Um, and so he says that this angel came to him and appeared, but his contemporaries say, oh no, he read it somewhere else. Um, they were also uh, in the 50s and 60s, a lot of these folks were also mixing um, religion and drugs and things together. So there was also some other influences at this time, but he is the one who came up, who took it. He's actually baking the cookies now. He He's the one who takes all of this random stuff and is actually baking the cookies. Um, he also, uh, though, was rumored to be a cultist. So this is why some people say that the Enneagram was actually a cult at one point. It, it, that wasn't the basis of his cult, but that's uh, because that's part of what he was teaching. Obviously, he was peddling a lot of things, um, and this was just one of them. So it, I have heard that it is, uh, it's a cult thing, um, and Christians should be cautious of it. Again, that's why I'm telling you that. Uh, Claudio Naranjo was a Chilean psychologist um, who the accidental death of his son in 1970 marked a turning point in his life. And so Naranjo set off on a six month pilgrimage under the guidance of Oscar Acaso um, and took this spiritual retreat in the desert near Africa, Chile, where uh, he considered the, the true, where, where he considered this the true beginning of his own spiritual experience. Um, Claudio Naranjo takes that teaching, that Enneagram teaching, and he teaches it to a number of other Jesuit mystics. Um, and once it was given to the Catholics and it quickly spread to the Protestant church as well. Um, it's during this period of the 1960s that it becomes really popular. It's also at a time when there are a lot of personality assessments, uh, personality theories that are coming out. And so this was one, the Enneagram was one that at least some uh, church leaders of the time kind of clung to. Um, so, Honestly, again, some of its roots are unclear. They're sometimes shady. Um, what we do know is that one of the Jesuit priests that received training about the Enneagram was Father Richard Rohr. Um, I have quoted him before. He was a Jesuit priest, which is, which is a branch of the Catholic tradition that is usually a little more contemplative, a little more, um, uh, it's just a branch of the, the Catholic tradition. Um, Father Richard Rohr is a prolific writer and speaker and teacher, and he was one of those that was um, taught the Enneagram um, in the 50s and 60s and began writing and studying on it. Um, he is a contemplative, meaning that he focuses on a very relational and experiential and thoughtful kind of Christianity. Um, he believes to this day that there's great power in the Enneagram. And he has said, all the Christian churches are being forced to an inevitable, honest, and somewhat humiliating conclusion. The vast majority of Christian ministry has been concerned with churching people into symbolic, restful, and usually ethnic belonging systems, rather than any real spiritual transformation into the mystery of God. Lately, I am convinced that most of our ministries have legitimated and that autonomous self and even fortified it with all kinds of religious armor. Religious people are even harder to transform because they don't think they need it. Much of what is called Christianity has more to do with disguising the ego behind the screen of religion and culture than any real movement toward a God beyond the small self and a new self in God. And so this is why we do it. 
we don't want to be a church that just focuses on attendance, just focuses on the big sins. <laughs> if this whole God and Jesus thing really matters, if we really say that we believe in God, that we believe in Jesus, that we believe in the possibility of a new life, it should change our lives, not just our Sunday morning schedule. We should want to know ourselves better, want to grow so that even like that fancy guy of Agrius, we can learn about ourselves to grow to be a better person in order to be able to love God more, to love other people more, um, and to help others to grow as well. So we're studying this for the hard work of transformation. Um, so now that we know how we got it and why we're studying it, my goal is going to tell you what it actually is. <laughs> Before I tell you all of this information, I feel like it's important for me to say I am not like a massive Enneagram expert. Neither me nor Charity yeah. are. Um, we're not certified in it. We're not whatever else. We've just done a good amount of personal work with it. So the information that we give you over the next several weeks are from sources that we trust. Like we didn't just come up with it. Um, it's from sources that we trust and we're just relaying it. Um, so I feel like it's important to say we are not we're not experts. Um, so the Enneagram, as Charity mentioned, is a personality tool. Um, it's not just an assessment. It's not something that um, you just take and it tells you what you are and then you leave with it like that. Um, it's something that you learn about yourself for the purpose of growing. Um, there's always a purpose to it. There's always, there's always this part of wanting to be transformed by it also think it's important to say it's not the end-all be-all. Um, it is not the only tool you should use for growth and transformation. It should be accompanied by prayer, contemplation, all the practices that are helpful for you personally. It needs to be accompanied by all of that. So don't, if you like it, if you end up getting into it, don't let it be like your God, right? That's, <laughs> that's not the point of it. Um, but one thing I think it does really well is it gives us language to understand ourselves. So I had a professor who came into class one day and shared that his mom just got a diagnosis of an autoimmune disease. She'd been struggling with it for multiple years and he came in relieved. It wasn't like a good diagnosis, um, but he was sharing it and he was relieved. And what he said was because she's been dealing with this for two or three years, it's greatly affecting her life, but we have a name for it now. We have something that we can cling to. It's like this weight was lifted off our shoulders. And now that we have a name, we know what to do with it. We know what to expect. And I think the Enneagram similarly does that, right? Like it gives us a language to name some things in ourselves and in our world that we can then do something with. When we can name something and have language for it, we can more easily do something with it. It also answers a lot of life's biggest questions. By answers, I mean, you still have to do all the hard work of figuring it out, but it, it helps you along the way. Things like, why am I the way that I am? Why do I respond to things the way I do? Um, how, do I, how do I have better relationships with people? Um, why, do I, <laughs> why do I just react? instead of thinking about something? Why, why do I respond so much differently than my friend or my spouse or who, my kids? Like what, what is going on? It, it really helps answer those questions. And again, you have to do the hard work um, is the kind of annoying part of it. And it does this by arguing. Um, I will show you, I'll give these sheets out later, um, but those that are online, I'll send it uh, in the chat as well. But this picture, it argues that there are nine main personality types and we are dominant in one. So it's not saying that we solely are one of these main archetypes and that's it, right? We're just dominant in one. We each, we have pieces of every number, but our way of processing and our way of being in the world is dominant in one number. That's what we naturally go to. One thing that I that I like about it is it, Richard Rohr says, as Charity quoted, he says, the Enneagram recognizes 
that humans are far too complex and nuanced to fit into simple categories. And there's some person, not all personality assessments and tools, but there's some that kind of put you in a box and then this is who you are and that's it. Um, and that's not what the Enneagram does. It is saying we're too complex just to be in a certain box. You can't, you can't look at a person and be like one, two, six, nine, like we're not that simple. Um, but what the Enneagram does is hopefully teaches us that there are, it teaches that there are nine main kind of modes of processing and seeing the world. And um, this guy named Viktor Frankl says, between stimulus and response, there is a space. There's a little thing in between stimulus and response. There's this little space. Um, and what the Enneagram is hopefully teaching us is that this space, A, is really sacred and is the path for growth and transformation. Um, but in this little space, we have the ability to choose our response. And what the Enneagram is doing is trying to essentially widen that space for us to be able to sit in it and decide, is that how I need to respond? So for example, I'm a dominant nine on the Enneagram. So one of the things um, that's common is I like to avoid conflict. Life is just easier if I like hide it and run away. So conflict happens. And my response is almost always going to be, I'm going to hide it. I'm going to run away. It's going to be fine. It'll go away. Right. But instead, I'm because I have this language and way of seeing now the response or sorry, the stimulus happens, conflict happens. And then I decide in this little sacred space in between, I don't need to just autopilot through. I don't need to just go, all right, I'm going to avoid it. But maybe I need to respond a little differently. Maybe I need to respond more like an eight would or respond differently. Like, I don't need to just avoid it. I need to go head on to this conflict. Um, so this, this idea that we are on autopilot, our personality is essentially that autopilot. And um, again, the Enneagram is about growth and transformation. So how do we change it to where I don't always autopilot? Sometimes I need to respond this way, right? But not always. Um, so how can I see my personality in a way that I can respond differently when needed? It's also, um, the Enneagram says that there are healthy and unhealthy states for every single dominant number. We'll talk about that each week a lot, um, a little more. I won't go into it today just because you're getting enough information as it is. Um, if you've done reading in the past week that we've sent, or if you have done work on the Enneagram, or as we talk about it over the next few weeks, you'll hear this phrase, childhood wound. I don't find it the most helpful phrasing. And um, the reason is because wound sounds like it was purposefully harmfully inflicted almost. Um, but essentially, if you hear this childhood wound, one of the main things that the Enneagram is arguing is that at a very young age, uh, we wanted to feel like we belonged. We wanted to be a part of our clan, whether that's family or whether that's uh, friends, whether whoever that is, another trusted adult. We wanted to feel like we belonged. We wanted to feel loved. We just wanted to feel okay in the world. And the Enneagram argues the way that as a child, we figured out that we can feel that way, that becomes our main personality type. So for example, a very young child may, um, learn that if they achieve, if they do really well at something, they get attention from their parents. And so they keep doing that. They keep like being really good at something and get attention, like whatever it is, claps at a young age, love. And as they get older, you keep doing that without even realizing it. As a child, you just, you keep achieving and you keep achieving and you keep achieving because you feel like that is the way that you are loved. That's the way that you can feel whole. Um, and that on the Enneagram would become like an Enneagram dominant number three, um, which is titled the achiever. Um, that's just one example. And the reason I don't like childhood wound language is because you could put a totally different kid in the same exact situation and they may become a completely different person. 
Um, so parents that are in the room, don't feel like you are completely wounding your children terribly. Um, know that it's both nature and nurture, right? Um, but the childhood wound is essentially uh, how, how I responded to my environment as a kid to become the personality that I am. The Enneagram says that our personality is essentially a mask, our false self, this, this way that we learn to be in the world that we then portray to the world, again, because as a kid, we felt like it gave us love and attention. And so we still do it as adults. Um, we still do it as teenagers. We, we just still do it. Um, but underneath is our true self, our whole self. Some of the things are the same, right? Like our gifts are still our gifts. Um, and we need to learn how to live into those gifts while also realizing that there's often that shadow side that Charity mentioned. Um, for example, an Enneagram dominant two has this gift to the world of caring and loving really well and always giving, giving, giving. And that's a gift, right? Like that's the world needs that. But at the same time, the dark side of that may be uh, the shadow side may be um, you care so much for other people, you tend to neglect yourself a little bit. Um, so what are what are the really gifts that we have in the world, but also recognizing how to what's the bad of that? What what can be the flip side? And then how do we live? How do we live past it? Um, as I said earlier, probably my favorite thing about the Enneagram that makes it different is this box illustration. So Ian Morgan Cron says um, he's an Enneagram expert and podcaster, teacher, whatever, author, everything. Um, he says the Enneagram doesn't put you in a box. Instead, you it shows you the box that you have currently trapped yourself in. Um, so your personality is this box that your way of living has trapped yourself into. And then your gram wants to open it up so you can fly free, whatever it is. <laughs> um, so it doesn't just tell you who you are and leave you as that. And you just have to get over it, right? It's telling you this is your dominant way of living. And that's not all bad, but you need to learn how to grow from that. You need to learn how to be transformed from that. Um, I want to give the overviews. Joanna, I'll pass out. Uh, those that are on Zoom, there's a link that's about to be chatted to you that will have a PDF of what I'm handing everybody here. And all this page is, um, is very, very brief. I'll show you. Very, very brief descriptions of each number. And I'll read through them quickly, but I'll give you time after to really read them. So for the sake of time, I'm just going to read very briefly what each one is. Uh, your task this week is to do some work to read more about them. There'll be resources in the email that we send out. Um, but the point of me giving you this is for you just to see the nine um, dominant numbers. And uh, for you this week, just read more. If there's a couple things that stick out to you, maybe circle it. And as we go throughout the summer, uh, really hone in on those things. It's, it's not your job to figure out what you are like in a day. Um, that's not really likely or possible. Sometimes it's going to be really obvious, but a lot of times it's not. So Enneagram 1 is titled The Reformer. Again, there's different titles based on different teachers to do it. This is just one of the examples. This is the rational, idealistic person. They strive kind of this strives for is the motivation portion. Um, they strive for principled excellence as moral duty. Number two is titled the helper. It's the caring interpersonal type. It's what Muriel is, in case you were wondering. 
Uh, they strive for lavish love through self-sacrifice. Number three is the achiever. It's a success-oriented, pragmatic person um, who strives for recognition, appreciative recognition that they get through their successes. Number four is the individualist. It's a sensitive, withdrawn type that strives for discovery of identity for faithful authenticity. That's really wordy. Um, but <laughs> essentially, they really love to be themselves and unique um, in a positive way. Like, that's, that's a real gift. Number five is the investigator. And this is the intense cerebral type who strives for clarity through thoughtful conclusions. Um, so facts and logic is incredibly important for those. Uh, Enneagram six is titled the loyalist. And this is the committed security oriented type. And they strive for steady constancy through confident loyalty. Again, incredibly wordy. Um, these are the people who, I have a couple friends that are sixes and they're wonderful, right? Like they're the ones where you're, if you're planning a trip, they're thinking of what can go wrong, sometimes too much, right? But also like, it's really helpful things that I don't think about. Um, and they, they're wonderful people. They're really, really good friends, really loyal. Um, number sevens is, are the enthusiasts. They're busy, fun loving, and they strive for imaginative freedom for inspirational independence. They're the life of the party, always. Number eight is the challenger, and they're the powerful dominating type that strives for impassioned intensity for unfettered autonomy. Um, Charity is a dominant eight, and she will tell you a lot of the <laughs> writing on Enneagram eights, it just sounds incredibly <laughs> negative. It's not, it's, yeah. Um, so if you feel like you're Nate, just know that Enneagram is going to tell you you're even terribler than the other. <laughs> it's not true. You're not. I promise. Um, a dominant number nine is easygoing and they strive for harmonious peacefulness as congruent repose. And <laughs> the Enneagram dominant. Yes. <laughs> It is. It doesn't just sound peaceful. I am a dominant nine. Yeah. I'm a dominant nine and uh, it kind of annoys me because the nine always sounds the best. Like you just sound like so wonderful and easygoing and it just, everybody's like, oh, that sounds great. I want to be that. It's not as great as it sounds. Um, so yes, it is. It is terrible in many ways. So now that you have this and you're probably reading through it while I'm going to talk for like a minute more, um, I want to give a couple cautions on the Enneagram, a couple ways not to use it and a couple things to be aware of. First, um, taking tests for the Enneagram, Enneagram purists would say, <laughs> don't take a test. That's not the way to figure out your number. I think there can be a helpful starting place. There's a couple tests that are really good. And if you want to do that, reach out to me at Charity and we'll send you those. Um, One of them was uh, is connected to the website that was in this. Yes. Email, yeah. The, some tests that are like online that you just find randomly are gonna be really terrible and unhelpful. So just be aware of that. <laughs> um, I think they give a really good starting place. So if you take one of the better tests, it usually gives you like a couple that you may be. And I think it's a good starting place to hone in on a few to then do the work and the reading and the listening to try to figure out what really sticks out to you. Uh, one way that me and Charity talked about it, a good way to find your number is, is if you read one and you're like, this is terrible. Like, why is this hurting me so much? <laughs> that may be you. Um, <laughs> there's also this thing called stances um, that I find to be kind of the most helpful way to hone in on some numbers. And um, that will be in this week's email as well. So if you're having trouble finding your number, that's okay. It takes a while. I took a long time to find mine as well. So it's okay. Um, next, don't 
weaponize the Enneagrams, especially um, those that are siblings in the room and in families. <laughs> don't use it to like pick on somebody and be like, you're acting like such a five today. You're so annoying. <laughs> it's unhelpful. Like really unhelpful. We have some friends that we joke around with, um, but there's a line. There's a line and don't weaponize it unhelpfully. And it's also unhelpful to type other people. Um, and the reason is because Enneagram is about the motivation behind things. So our actions may look different than what they kind of usually would. And only we know our motivations. And if you try to type other people, especially if you do it incorrectly, um, it can be judgmental and really unhelpful. So be careful for typing other people. Uh, it's, it can go downhill. Uh, the last big one is don't use it as an excuse for your behavior. <laughs> so I could very easily say, you know, I'm just a dominant nine, so I'm just going to avoid all conflict the rest of my life. <laughs> it's just who I am, right? It's fine. But again, the Enneagram is about seeing that and changing it, about growing from it. So don't use it as an excuse to act a certain way and just get away with it. Other than that, uh, I will just say the Enneagram will kick your butt. It tells you how terrible you are sometimes. And if you feel like it's getting you down, um, try not to let it get you down too much. Uh, it, there is a lot of negative literature on it. By that, I mean negative as in it'll make you feel bad about yourself. Uh, you are a whole good person as you are. I'm trying to remember who said it. There's some quote that somebody says, um, God loves you just the way you are, holy, I'm paraphrasing, but God also loves you so much not to let you stay the exact way that you are. Um, so that growth aspect is important. So take it as an opportunity for growth, not as a, I'm a terrible person. Um, last, Charity mentioned it, but I just wanted to mention again, this, what this has to do with faith, because what I just talked about, I didn't say faith or necessarily a lot right but i mean our entire life a christian life becoming christ-like that's about growth that's about transformation and when we learn about ourselves we can learn how to love people better we can learn how to not harm other people we can learn about god that way right when we see good in ourselves we can see good in god and good in humanity and I also think Enneagram helps teach us some empathy for other people because <laughs> we see the patterns that other people will be thinking and processing and we can have grace for them now because we realize, oh, it's just like they're on autopilot. We live our lives on autopilot a lot. Um, and when we learn that, we can have grace for other people um, to then transform. Mm -hmm. So. So just a kind of an overview, um, each Sunday after today, we wanted to kind of give you an overview of things, but after today, each worship service will include, um, there's actually a group that has, uh, a band that has written a song, um, kind of uh, for each dominant number. Um, and so we'll play that as a part of the service. Um, each, uh, each week we'll do kind of a teaching time that explains, uh, takes on the different numbers and explains to you what's the motivation for somebody who is a dominant one, two, three, four. We're actually gonna randomly start with, it's not random. We're gonna start with an Enneagram five next Sunday. We, we actually, we spent way too much time um, thinking about what number to start with. So we're starting in the middle with a five. Um, and then it will include um, a, a shorter sermon that will um, either focus on somebody in scripture that has some of the traits of that Enneagram number or what we believe God would want to say to somebody who is dominant in this particular number. And, and again, as Michael said, while we're all kind of dominant in one way, um, you're going to see yourself in all these. So all want to be an achiever to find your identity, to feel good enough. The times that you feel like things have to be perfect. The times that you feel like every challenge in the world you're supposed to take on and fix, or every time you're supposed to avoid conflicts, like what would God say to you in those moments? And, um, and so hopefully 
by the end of the summer, we have this beautiful picture of all of the parts of us um, and, and how they're all made in the image of God, but also how we keep growing. Um, I think that quote, we looked it up, it, I think it was Brene Brown quoting, quoting Anne Lamott in uh, one of her books. It was very weird. Um, but the, the purpose, um, and we've got a, a benediction um, that I um, wrote, uh, I took it off of actually of something that came, one of the, the website, um, the Enneagram Institute has one of the, the tests if you wanna take that as a starting place. Um, one of the ones we would recommend, but it also, you can sign up for, once you feel like you might be clear about maybe a number that feels like it resonates with you, you can sign up for what they call an any of thought, um, and they send you uh, something to challenge you every day for transformation, um, and um, this week, one of the things that they included was kind of this, like a meditation, but I'm turning into a benediction. And so we'll read this every week. So let this be our benediction today as we um, finish our worship together. As you go, be here and present in this moment. Take a deep breath. Be grounded, alive, and connected to yourself. Be open and receptive to truth and compassion. Pay attention to the motives of your heart and mind, your strengths and your shadow side. Be open to transformation. Bear witness to the presence of God as you live fully into the knowledge that you are made into the image of God. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> I'm like the thing that was just made with the rest.